Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, March 16th, we're studying Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Jesus continues his teaching in the temple courts during Holy Week. He warns against the pretense of the scribes, and he commends a poor widow for her faith. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's good to be back. So we get started this morning. Pastor Preuss, let's talk context. We're here at the end of Mark chapter 12. What do we need to know about the surrounding context, the Gospel of Mark, as we go into this text? Well, uh, Jesus is getting closer to the cross. Uh, Mark is a short Gospel, uh, and uh, much of it is, well, the whole thing, really, but uh, it, it focuses a, tr- a tremendous percentage on his journey to the cross and the actual crucifixion, uh, because there's only 16 chapters. Uh, it's funny, I sent in my notes to you that uh, it, it's getting more intense, his uh, relationship with the scribes and these other religious leaders. And uh, I was rereading the Gospel of Mark this week, and, uh, you know, the first couple chapters, he's pretty intense. He's kind of intense with them the whole time. He, he's he gets angry with them, uh, with their hardness of heart, uh, very early on. But here it does get more intense. The Sadducees, uh, or the, the scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are, are getting more antagonistic toward him, and he is being antagonistic to them as well. So at the, at the beginning of chapter 11, this is his entrance into Jerusalem, he knows that he's going there to die, so he's arrived at the place where he is going to be crucified, and it's only a week away, uh, and uh, he, you know, he cleanses the temple, curses the fig tree, uh, he is, you know, rebukes them for challenging his authority, he tells this parable at the beginning of chapter 12 about uh, the tenants, uh, the ones who murder those sent to them, and murder the son who is sent to them, and he speaks his parable against them because they are the tenants and the temple and uh, the, the re- religion of the Jews is the vineyard, and they have uh, and they have abused it and have rejected the prophet sent to them. Uh, he has the Sadducees go after him, uh, or the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all go after him. He silences them all. And then at the very end, uh, which is what you guys uh, I assume would have discussed last time, uh, with who is whose son is the Christ? And in Mark's gospel, it has Jesus just kind of say this in his teaching. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, he's much more direct, and he asks the Pharisees and has them a- answer the question, and then he, uh, and then he says, "Oh, then." If, if David is, if the Christ is David's son, how can he be his Lord? And he cites Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and put your enemies under your feet. Uh, so with that, uh, that kind of sets us up here, because it says, and in his teaching he said. So he silences the scribes and the Pharisees. He gets the people to marvel. Uh, there is this clear opposition between him and the scribes 
and all the religious leaders. Uh, and then you have this this text uh, that we're discussing right here, where he, where of course, as you said, uh, compares the, these scribes with that widow. Mm. I think you're right that the intensity has been building in Holy Week, even even as you said, you know, I mean, it's, it's maybe it's been a while since we've looked at those early chapters in Mark. There was a lot of intensity there. The conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees built very quickly in Mark's gospel, and it certainly was very intense. They were already plotting to destroy him back in chapter three. But ever since the the entry into Jerusalem in chapter 11, that intensity has been building, as you said, this back and forth between Jesus' opponents coming at him with questions that they think they're going to trap him with, and then Jesus evading their trap, teaching the truth, all the while upping the intensity level into the text that we've got today. And I think really building toward what's going to happen in chapter 13, where he's going to come out and tell his disciples, look, this temple, this building, it's going to be destroyed. And and chapter 13 almost serves as a, a bit of a climax to that. And then, I mean, it goes, you know, it, there's a bit the mirror, I suppose, of what happened in chapter 11, where he cleansed the temple coming now in 13, he's going to say, this is one day going to be gone. I mean, you can, you can just see how the conflict builds and builds and builds. And then all of that leading to what happens in chapters 14 and 15, where Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's convicted, arrested, crucified, and, and all of the events that, that happen at the very end of Holy Week. It's really building here, like you said. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something greater than the temple is here. Uh, these scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they they focus so much on wealth and, you know, even the gifts on the altar instead of the altar itself, uh, let alone uh, the God to whom that, that altar is built. Uh, so, yeah, Jesus is coming, and he is showing this all to be a shadow, and he's the substance. So it is... Um, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great meditation in Lent uh, for sure. With that context in mind, we turn to the text. We're in Mark chapter twelve, beginning at verse thirty-eight. And in his teaching, he said, "Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers." they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance." But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's the text for today, Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. Pastor Price, as you said, the text begins that we've got today, in his teaching, he said, in Jesus' teaching. Uh, Again, about that teaching, what particularly does Mark want us to recall from what he's said before? Why is this so important that Jesus is teaching here during Holy Week? Well, yeah, it's, it's actually uh, pretty easy if you're looking at the context. Uh, right before, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And of course, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, he then says, and from that, that time on, because this is just a parallel of Matthew 22, uh, he says, from, from that time on, nobody dared to ask many more questions. So here you have, and in his teaching, so obviously he's teaching other things, he's teaching the Great Commandment, uh, 
but he is now warning against the scribes. So you have this positive and this and this negative. Uh, the positive is what ought to be taught. The negative is beware of those who do not teach it. So it's kind of like uh, in our catechism. You know, how is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Uh, help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches who lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us, protect us from this heavenly Father. And it's that, but anyone who would, you know, live, uh, teach or live otherwise, uh, contrary, uh, profanes the name of God. It's, it's that uh, that he is addressing here. The scribes are supposed to be teachers of the church. Uh, they're supposed to know better, and they and they do not. They don't even understand who the Christ is. And it's not just that they don't understand who the Christ is. I mean, that could be forgiven, but they refuse to learn. Uh, so you know, they're, uh, uh, Jesus says when he's talking about John the Baptist, he says, you know, the, well the you know John the Baptist came in righteousness, and you know the the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes repented and believed in him, but you, even after you saw it, did not later repent. Uh, so it's, uh, this is a rebuke of, of, of them, but it's also the warning to those who are hearing the gospel. Hey, you're hearing the gospel? Uh, well, now you better pay attention uh, that there are false teachers and that they should be marked and avoided. I think this is an important point to bring out, just that this is Jesus' teaching here. Uh, throughout this section of Holy Week, as you said, the intensity has been growing. You see this antagonism between Jesus and his opponents, but it's not Jesus being angry for being angry's sake, or or he's not. it's not that he's just mad at these guys and doesn't like them, but the problem is they're teaching falsely. And, and as you said, they even refused to learn the truth so that they could teach the truth. You know, it's, it's not that the scribes and the Pharisees and the other opponents of Jesus, he's, he's not mad that they have this zeal for doctrine or, or something like that. He's mad that they've got the wrong doctrine, that they're, they're teaching falsely. And I think that's, that's an important context. So as you said, it's, it's not just Jesus having this conflict, but he wants people to know the truth. And that's been something we've brought out in other points that as Jesus evades these traps, he's not just showing off, but he's actually teaching something. And the same is true here. Yeah. Uh, Jesus, yeah. Jesus' concern, we'll get to that when we talk about they receive the greater condemnation. Well, why? Well, it's because he cares for his sheep. You know, anyone who would cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him than a, than a millstone be tied around his neck and they'd be dropped to the depths of the sea. This isn't that God is sadistic or that he takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, it, I mean, it's the same, it's like, you know, a shepherd has to not only guide the sheep to uh, streams of, of gentle water and to green pasture, but he also has to, you know, sling a, a rock at the head of wolves and, and beat them with, with his rod and kill them uh, to protect the sheep. And, and this is how, how Christ is. And also we'll notice that he says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around. So there are some scribes, believe it or not, who do follow him. And we see this uh, with some of the religious leaders like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who, although cowardly during Jesus' life, did take courage at his crucifixion and at his death, and then went and anointed and, and provided for his dead body. So uh, 
Yeah, Jesus is not a hater, as they say. Uh, everything he does is out of love, even his rebukes. And it's something that I think pastors need to know, and also uh, Christians uh, in general, the hearers, that the preaching of pure doctrine is not simply saying the positive of what is true, but is also the rejecting of what is not true. And this is always the way it has been. This isn't something that was made up by our Lutheran confessors. If you've read the large cat or the uh, Augsburg Confession, you know that after every um, article, they'll say, you know, and we condemn or we reject, you know, the Anabaptists who teach otherwise or things like that. Um, no, this is this comes from Jesus Himself, who taught us if you're going to pr- proclaim true doctrine, that is true teaching, the teaching that saves, the words of eternal life, you must also reject and mark and avoid the false doctrine, which is poison, which scatters the sheep, which comes from Satan. And um, like he, I think you said it beautifully before, this isn't Jesus being upset at zeal. Uh, I mean, zeal without love, zeal without truth is evil. But zeal is not bad. Zeal comes from the Holy Spirit, and we should be zealous for the Lord. Jesus was zealous for the Lord. In fact, zeal consumed him uh, uh, So Jesus says, beware of the scribes. And then you said, there are certain scribes he wants you to watch out for. So he, he indicates what marks them. Beware of the scribes, the ones who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They get the best seats in the synagogues. They get the places of honor at feasts. What's what's wrong with this? What Why are these the signs that Jesus points out to mark these scribes? Well, it shows that, it shows that they're worldly. Uh In John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And this is something that's very consistent in all the Gospels, it's in the Epistles. Uh, In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, that's quick, one of those passages, that's right after he says, If you receive, uh, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema, and he repeats that twice. And then uh, in verse 10 uh, of Galatians uh, chapter 1, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's pointing out that they are not servants of Christ uh, because they are seeking the approval of men. Uh, Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And much of what is in Matthew 6 leading up to the Lord's Prayer is covered right here, uh, especially when it gets into the, the long prayers. So if you are worldly, then you are not heavenly. I mean, if, if you're either born of the flesh or you're born of the Spirit. You either are seeking things of the earth that are perishable, or you're seeking heavenly things that are imperishable. Uh, another thing I want to point out here is I think this is a classic example of synecdoche. Now, synecdoche is a term uh, that it speaks of a figure of speech where a part refers to a whole, or a whole refers to a part. And I think it's important for us Lutherans who believe the Bible is the Word of God to understand 
that there are certain figures of speech uh, that we use in everyday language, but we also use in the Bible, because there are a lot of traps that are set for us by scoffers who don't believe the Bible's the Word of God. So you'll be asked a question like, do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? Yes. So do you believe there are any errors in the Bible? No, I don't believe there's any errors in the Bible. And then they'll set up a trap and say, do you think that God, that literally, this is what, you know, what, what happened, that, uh, that Jesus literally said this or that and the other thing? And you're like, well, yes. They said, so this literally happened. Like, well, yes. But here it says this happened. Aha, I caught you. Um, and, there are, and, and if you aren't familiar with the way language works, like you don't have to even have to know Greek or Hebrew or, or anything, just know how language in general works, uh, you can get caught. Uh, so synecdoche, like I said before, is when a part refers to a whole or a whole refers to a part. So Philip Melanchthon talks about this in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, uh, when he refers to in, in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus says that the woman uh, loved much, or she's been forgiven much, for she loved much. And here he says that the synecdoche is having the effect referred to the, the cause. So when he says that she is forgiven much because she loves much, he's not saying that her forgiveness came on account of her love, but rather her love is the is the effect of her forgiveness. Uh, so he uh, and which is if you read the whole chapter in context, you see that's very clear with the parable that he says that the one who's forgiven more forgives more, and he says, you know, your faith has saved you. So it's very obvious that she's forgiven. And she has great love because she has been forgiven. So we have examples of, of, of synecdoche in that way. And here's another example of synecdoche uh, that the, he's saying, beware of the scribes. I really don't think he's talking only of the scribes, but he's using the scribes to refer to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and all of these groups who set themselves up as teachers of the church and are, uh, and are, you know, laying burdens on, on the people and are behaving as hypocrites. And I think it's obvious, because the scribes and the Pharisees are uh, regularly grouped together, uh, and these criticisms, he, these very same criticisms, he says, of the Pharisees. So, for example, in Luke chapter 11, uh, he, he, he writes... Uh, to turn one more page. In Luke chapter 11, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Uh, and then again in 14, uh, Luke 14, verse 7, he, he, he then says, uh, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they, and he's talking with these Pharisees, because uh, he's invited to a, a ruler of the Pharisee's house, how they chose the place of honor. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of a small point, but I do think it's a, it's a big point when we're thinking about biblical interpretation, uh, that we Lutherans who believe the Bible is the Word of God should also recognize that there are figures of speech. Uh, and when, when we talk about something being literal, uh, I mean, sometimes you can get caught in a trap there. And this is an example of synecdoche. I think Jesus is, he is rebuking all of these groups, and then also for our context today, and we don't have Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes the way they did back then, at least not in the technical sense. Uh, but we do have people who set themselves up to be righteous outwardly, 
and who love the adoration of people, uh, and uh, and that is a sign that they are not seeking the heavenly reward. Hmm. With that, that thought that this applies in today's world as well, those who would set themselves up as teachers, and these signs that Jesus gives to Mark, I, I could imagine someone saying, well, Pastor Preuss or Pastor Apple, you wear a, a fancy robe when you conduct worship services. It, it looks nice. You you say, I know we haven't talked about this yet, but you say long prayers in worship. How do we, how do we know... Where where is that line where, you know, I mean, why is it okay for a Lutheran pastor to wear a nice alb and a stole in worship and to to speak eloquently in the prayers? What's the difference? Where where do we? You, you see what I'm asking? Where how do we know yeah. when someone's making a pretense and when not? Yeah, well, I guess when when they're making a pretense, when they're being <laughs> hypocrite. Right. So, yeah. it, it, Jesus isn't saying that you're not allowed to wear wear long robes. Right, I mean, some of these um, garments were even specified in the Old Testament, you know, with the tassels and such. Um, what he's saying is that they are folk. I mean, you look at the at the garments of the priests, for goodness sake. I mean, especially the chief priests, and these are beautiful uh, and expensive and elaborate garments. So he's not speaking against these garments, but rather is the the worship of these garments and the thinking that you're better be because of these things. So why do we wear these long robes uh, in the divine service? Well, it's a tradition. Well, where did the tradition come from? Well, it used to be just like that's actually how they dressed, presumably, you know, in the third, you know, second century, whatever it was, and then they kind of kept it there. But it, it, it developed meaning, and the meaning is to cover up the man. So we wear, you know, a white robe. What is this doing? This is covering up the man to so that people do not look at just some sinner, but they look at a representative of Christ. Uh, they look at the office that is given by Christ to declare the forgiveness of sins. I mean, and we see that. I mean, you go and you see like one of these more hip churches uh, where, with a guy wearing a polo shirt and uh, just trying to be cool, calls himself Chad or whatever. Um, I mean, it was fine. I mean, I don't have anything against the name Chad, but like you're not there as Chad. You're there as a representative of Christ. So obviously, you can have someone dressed in long robes, use it in a very evil way, and you can have someone who isn't wearing a robe, who is just dressed in street clothes, uh, who is being very reverent. Um, but you you should learn what the purpose of these things are, and I think that we have good purposes uh, for wearing these robes. Uh, we're not one changing things needlessly. I think is a very dangerous thing. It ends up being a distraction. Uh, Lutherans, especially in our, in our church body, are used to going to church, and they see that their pastor is covered up. And, I mean, I have the privilege, I'm, as a young pastor, serving people who have had many pastors before me, and I'm just one of many, and they still come, you know. And, I mean, they, they, they've had pastors who are dead and gone now, right? They've had pastors who are 50 years older than them, and now they have pastors who are... Uh, 50 years younger, right? And, uh, and But you have this kind of thing that just stays the same. So yes, it's symbolism. It can be done away with. But it has to do with the in, in, intent. Um, as far as the long prayers, uh, I do think that can be a, a, that can be a danger. I, I do think going off on, on 
praying for too long can be a dangerous thing when people are no longer paying attention. You know, they only have such a long attention span. But I think you have to be careful. Like, are our prayers really that long? And as a matter of fact, they're not. <laughs> uh, they really aren't. And if you desire to actually, I mean, how long would it take you to actually list off all of the things that you need and want from the Lord? I mean, if we actually had true faith, I'm not, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. If we actually, you know, acted out what our faith is, you know, we'd be constantly praying. We'd have, we would have enough time in the day to pray for everything. So these prayers that we say in church, I mean, there is a form to them, there's a function to them, there's a purpose to them, they're based on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, listen to what they say. These are wonderful things. Uh, and I think if you actually listen to what we're praying for, then you will gladly say amen and be glad that the pastor says every single word of it because you want every single word of it to come true. And also a big thing to remember is that when the pastor is praying the prayer of the church and the divine service or any of these prayers, he's not just saying his own personal prayer to show off to people about how pious he is. He's praying on behalf of the congregation. And that's why the congregation responds either amen or hear our prayer or Lord have mercy. And you notice it's always the congregation that says the words of execution in the prayer the amen or the hear our prayer or Lord have mercy. It's not the pastor. You'll see that. Look at the, at the rubric. It's bold and hear our prayer, you know, Lord have mercy, amen. And if you didn't notice that, well, you have to start saying it. That's your line if you're sitting in the pew, not the pastor's. Why? Because that prayer isn't just the pastor's prayer. It's the prayer for the whole congregation. So uh, I can see how people can confuse this and think, oh, well, the pastors, they're just acting like the, the scribes that Jesus is condemning. But they're really not. Uh, and, I mean, only in a very, very superficial way could you, could you interpret it that way, I think. I think that's a really helpful answer. And, and just a couple of thoughts. You know, in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about beware of practicing your righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about your giving, your praying, and your fasting. And, and I think the, the thing to pick up there is that why are you doing it? And what he condemns is beware of doing it so that you would be seen. And he doesn't say don't do it, right? He assumes that you're going to pray, that you're going to give to the needy, that you're going to fast, but don't do it to be seen. And I think the same thing can be said here, particularly, you know, as pastors, when we think about these things, you know, am I wearing this long robe or saying a long prayer to be seen? That's a moment of, of self-examination, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily what I'm doing. And then from the perspective of the hearer, to, to keep in mind, this isn't just about what you see, but but it's about what you're hearing. To go back to what we started with, it's Jesus is teaching here. He's warning against false teaching. So, you know, you, you look at your pastor, one, you know, you've got one pastor who's wearing the liturgical vestments. You've got another pastor who doesn't. How do, what do I know? What do I, what do I pay attention to? What's he teaching? And, and go start there, you know, listen to what he's teaching, compare it to what the scriptures say and, and start there and then use this as, as a rubric. So we're going to maybe we'll pick that more up on the other side of the break. Pastor Price, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Mark chapter 12. Pastor James Price, taking a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, March 16th. We're looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. We have Pastor James Price with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Price, prior to the break, we were talking about the various things that Jesus says to mark and avoid when it comes to these scribes, the ones who are all about outward show, but their teaching does not match up with the scriptures. They were refusing to learn who is the Christ, as Jesus was teaching. We've talked about their their long robes, their greetings, the best seats, and the places of honor. Jesus also says they devour widows' houses. What, what might he be referring to there? Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting uh, phrase. I, I think there are two possible explanations, and there's probably a little bit or, or a lot of both of it, uh, of this. So the first would be that they accept or even guilt widows into giving them expensive gifts so that they are rich and the widows live in poverty. Uh, and the second would be that they neglect the divine command to care for the widow and the fatherless, uh, and then they would probably justify it by some sort of tradition. Uh, so um, the, with that, I, I have a note for, for Mark chapter 7. If you guys remember from Mark chapter 7, where they are criticizing Jesus' disciples for not washing their hands for they eat, and then Jesus says, well, why do you replace the commandments of the Lord with the traditions of, of men? And then he gives an example about how they say, you know, the the law says that you must honor your father and mother, and whoever despises father and mother uh, must die. But you say that if a man says whatever I would give to my father and mother is to is Corbin, that is given to God, then he no longer is obligated to keep the law. So they they erase the commandment of God with a tradition, and you can very well see them doing something in this way. So. There's the positive of the law and the negative of the law. The positive is that God commands that you take care of the widow, and the negative is that he uh, forbids you from harming them. So in, for the uh, sin of, then there's a sin of commission, sin of omission. So the sin of commission, they're, they're both end up being sins of commission, when you think about it. But the sin of commission would be they actively, actively uh, seek to take from the widow and then the omish would be that they're not caring for them as they ought to. So I, uh, I, I wrote down kind of a, a scenario that I, you have to be careful with conjecture because you're not supposed to do this in, you know, contemporary life. That You shouldn't be assuming the worst of your neighbor, you know, put the best construction and everything, or it's a catechism, uh, the update catechism says, explain everything the kindest way. But Jesus is very vague here. Um, not to say the scripture's not clear, but he doesn't give any specifics. But there are examples in history that you can see what they could do. So a scenario I think that could be very realistic is one of their own people dies, like a scribe or a Pharisee, whoever it is. 
And she has never managed the money, doesn't take care of any of these things. And uh, her hu- dead husband's friends come and say, hey, we're going to help you uh, manage your estate. And we're going to take care of everything. And we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to set up a fund, a trust, so that you can have a pension and that you're going to be taken care of for the rest of your life. And what your husband would really like is for this to be given to the poor, to, uh, given to the, uh, to the synagogue, and to be given to the temple to, for the things of the Lord. And she'll say, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking care of me and managing all this stuff. This was so stressful. And you're going to take care of these things. And, of course, he would want things to be taken care of, given to the Lord and to the synagogue. So then they give her a tiny little pension that she can barely live on. And then uh, they take the rest of the money and enrich themselves, saying that they're giving it to the Lord. And then she is left in, in poverty. Uh, another example would just simply be that a woman is living in poverty and there's, they're supposed to be taken care of her. And they say, well, technically we are taking care of her to such and such extent. And really the things of the Lord are more important. And then they go out and they spend their time in these really, really nice robes and, and, and things like that. So, I mean, today it could be like, you know, a pastor's wife, uh, our pastor dies and his wife, you know, uh, he has like this pension. He's like, hey, hey, you know, we'll, we'll give you a small sum of money so you can, you know, afford cabbages to eat. And uh, we're going to then buy a bunch of incense and chasubles and um, pay for these long uh, retreats in Hawaii for, like, I don't know, learn how to be a better preacher or counselor, something like that, and, uh, <laughs> and buy a bunch of wine and stuff like that, because we're giving to the church, and that's what your husband would want. So, I mean, maybe I'm having a little bit too much fun with this elaborate thing, but these are things that we see happen all the time, widows being taken advantage of, and under, under pretenses. Uh, that seem good, and you can you can very you, you could very well see such a situation happening. I'm, I'm, as you were talking there, I was reminded of of what James writes in in chapter two. He talks about the brother or sister who's poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and he imagines a, a Christian going up to that person and saying, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without mm-hmm. giving them the things needed for the body. James says, "You know what good is that?" And he calls that a a faith by itself without works, and and that being a a dead faith. That that's not a very difficult situation to imagine here with these scribes, Pharisees, other religious leaders that they, you know, and, and I think, you know, that word pretense for pretense, they make long prayers, but they're ignoring the needs of the widows. But in order to cover up that lack of faith and love, both they, they say these beautiful prayers that make them look very religious, very pious. And, and in fact, you know, as elsewhere, Jesus would say, they're just whitewashed tombs. Right. And you could very well see that. You could see them, you know, uh, a widow uh, husband dies, the widow is left with the, his estate, and then they take all of it, except for a tiny little amount, leave her in poverty, brag about how much they've given to her to take care of her, and then brag about how much money is being given to the synagogue and the temple, and make a really long prayer, religiously prayer, to justify it. Yeah, that's I really don't, I mean, the more I think of it, I don't really think I'm adding that much conjecture. I think this is the type of situation that Jesus is uh, describing. Mm. Um, With the long prayers, if I can quit, just talking about that, uh, Jesus talks about this, again, in Matthew 6, as he leads up to the Lord's Prayer, and uh, there are two kind of things that you think, but one, he he criticizes them for the long prayers instead of having prayers of faith, the reason is because they want to be sent by men. He talks about Matthew 6 and, and Luke 18. But the other one is he criticizes the pagans, the Gentiles, for their long prayers, thinking they'll be heard by their many words. 
And I think that's something to remember, too. This is an indication of a lack of faith, because these Pharisees, I don't think these Pharisees and scribes um, could even admit to themselves that they're trying to uh, you know, pull the wool over God's eyes. I think if you were to ask them, they would, you know, in somewhat honesty say, yeah, well, we're doing this to God. We're doing this to be heard by God and things like that. But like, it's like the more they talk, the more not only are they convincing people around them, but they're convincing themselves and they think they're convincing God. But if they actually believe in the promise, then one, they wouldn't do these wicked things and they would have confidence in their prayer. But their prayers just keep on, they get long-winded because they don't actually have confidence that God desires to do what they ask. Jesus then concludes this warning against the scribes and the religious leaders. He says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why does he say that? Well, it's because to to whom much has been given, much is expected. Um, It's very interesting. James chapter 3, verse 1, he says uh, that you brothers, you know that we who teach, that not everyone should be a teacher, for we who teach. Uh, will be judged with greater strictness. And when you look at the Greek, I sent it to you, I don't know if I want to read it on, uh, on the air, uh, but it's remarkable when I saw this, how similar it is. Uh, so in Mark twelve forty he says, uh, they will receive um, the greater judgment or the greater condemnation. And in uh, 31, uh, in, in James 3, verse 1, he says, uh, for we know that, for no, knowing that we will receive the greater judgment, or it's translated like this, uh, we'll be judged with greater strictness, but actually we will receive the greater judgment. So these are teachers of the Word of God. Uh, they know the Word of God, and they're acting against it. I mean, even a Jew today, uh, a not, an un- unbelieving, like a, a, a non-Christian Jew who follows Judaism, will admit to you that what Jesus is describing of these scribes and Pharisees is unrighteous and unjust, uh, because they are being hypocrites. What they don't recognize is that they're doing the same thing by rejecting Christ and, th- and then being focused more on earthly things, which is very much what Judaism, the religion of Judaism, is, is today. It's focused much more on you know, as we would call it, second table of law, instead of actually uh, worshiping the true God through Christ. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, it's expected more of them. Um, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, the one who knew his father's will but did not do it will receive a more severe beating. In uh, Matthew chapter 21, uh, that's where Jesus rebukes them after that uh, parable, and he says that uh, John that uh, even after they saw it, they did not then repent. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, he, he's rebuking actually Jewish Christians uh, who judge and yet do the very things that they are condemning others for. He says the name of the, of the, of the, of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And as I referred to earlier, you know, whoever would cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be greater for it would be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and that he be thrown to the depths of the sea. So um, it's because of the severity of the sin. One, it's more is expected of them because they have the word of God, and then also because they're teachers and they're leading people astray. It's much worse to be a shepherd who sells the sheep to a thief or lets wolves eat them 
than, than to be just a dumb sheep that, you know, wanders into the woods and others follow you, right? Or something like that. Or you just wander in and, and get yourself in a, in a bad situation by yourself. Uh, so I, I think that's the big, the big difference. Mm. It is interesting, interesting that you bring up James 3 and the, the similarity in language there between what Jesus says here. I mean, just looking through even James chapter 2, it seems like a lot of what James teaches there is, is almost just a commentary on what Jesus has here. You know, he talks about within the church showing partiality to the rich over the poor or, or giving the rich the place of honor within the church. You know, he talks about that, what I mentioned earlier about, you know, just saying go in peace without taking care of the needs of the body. And then, you know, in chapter three, you get that note about those who are, are teachers will be judged with that greater strictness or they'll have that, that greater judgment. It's almost like James is, is commenting directly on what Jesus is, is saying here. Because James was there listening to him. I think a, a, a book, if I could recommend a book quick, um, I don't even have it in my, in, in my office now, so I can't look at the, the title. I believe it's, for, it's from Professor David Scarrett from Fort Wayne Seminary. Uh, and it's, I think it's called uh, James, the Epistle of Faith. I think that's mm-hmm. the name of it. Uh, and it's, a, it's a short book. It's on a short epistle. It's phenomenal, and he does a very good job of, one, showing that James is actually Lutheran, that this is about faith. Uh, but also, James obviously was there. He heard the teaching of Jesus. And when you compare the epistle of James, like read Matthew, or you can read Mark too, and Mark is so similar to Matthew. But read Matthew and Mark, and then read James. And you, I mean, you'll have those eureka moments. And it's not just chapter 1 and 2. I mean, it's the whole thing. Uh, he is paraphrasing and saying uh, words that Jesus said, and it's because he was there. He heard it, and he's teaching uh, really from from the words of Jesus that he himself heard with his own ear. I, I, I Googled it real quick. It's called James the Apostle of Faith by David Scare. Yeah. Okay, the Apostle of Faith. I'm stuck. No, it's, it's fine. Scare is listening to this. I apologize. <laughs> I thought it was the epistle because it is an epistle, but yeah, he's also an apostle. So an apostle, the Apostle of Faith. So a, a book recommendation, James, the apostle of faith by Dr. David scare, take a look at it, compare. And, and I think you're right. I mean, like just to see those similarities is, is so important. So we've got about 12 minutes here, pastor Price and, and the end of the text verses 41 through 44 forms this unit. It's, it's now an account. Jesus sees something happening there in the temple. He uses it as an object lesson to teach. Now it seems he's been giving the negative example. Now he's got a positive example right in front of him. He's watching people put their offerings into the treasury. He sees rich people putting in large sums, but here comes this poor widow. She puts in two small copper coins and Jesus commends her for that. Take us into this account. Yeah. uh, One just quick, I think it's just hilarious how Jesus is able to do things that we would find very socially awkward. <laughs> it's just like, who takes up a seat and just sits? Like right now, we're not passing the offering plate because uh, of COVID, I guess. And uh, so we just have like the, you know, the offering plates in the back. So people put their offering there. And I greet people too after church. But I make a point of not looking at the offering plate, not looking at people while they're putting money in the offering plate because, you know, I think it's awkward. And you can just see Jesus just standing there, sitting there, and just looking with his disciples saying, hey, come over here. Let's watch people put their money in. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's Jesus' prerogative. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, this is a great lesson. Uh, obviously, you can see the contrast. You have the scribes who devour widows' houses, and then here you have a poor widow who literally gives all that she has. And you can say, like, what she's giving here is way, way more 
than what the scribe than the than the money that the scribes stole from her so that they could give, right? So let's say the, the scribes just fleece her of all her money and say, hey, we're giving this, you know, uh, in, in the name of your husband and, 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 and they donate it and it's this tremendous amount of money that can actually uh, provide for her for many years. And then she has collapsed with all that she has and she's like, well, I'm going to give this to the Lord and that's more. Well, why is that more? It's a tiny amount. Uh, well, it's because it's been done through faith because she's giving all that she has uh, to live on. Um, so it, it, it's one of these things, I mean, um, it's kind of like these, uh, uh, kind of the, the, the radicals who, who talk about, you know, uh, income, uh, income equality and things like that. Sometimes they say things that are kind of right, um, or, or at least sound right, because uh, they're close to what Jesus said. But, uh, you know, the poor have less to spare, right? I mean, someone who makes a million dollars a year to give 10% to the church it is much easier for him, or it should be, uh, than someone who's making $20,000 a year. Because you can't live off $20,000 a year, right? So you can't really spare anything. That 10% for the person making $20,000 is, uh, is a lot more. And I mean, that's, that's the logic behind these whole graduated, uh, or graduated, whatever they're called, income taxes, like the larger the more money you make. Um, I think what this teaches us is, one, everyone should tithe. Uh, that's the example in Scripture. You know, we're free of the law. You know, there, there's nothing binding us. So there's no command that you give 10%. But it's obviously what you should do, right? Jacob never, Jacob died, you know, hundreds of years before the law was given on Mount Sinai. And yet, what did he say? Whatever I get, I will give 10% to the Lord. Uh, so we should all get in the habit of not waiting until we've spent all the money that we needed and wanted to, and then see what we want to give to the church at the end. But we should, the very first thing that we budget is budget 10% to give to the church. Uh, and the mentality we should have is like this widow. It's not yours. It's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. The Lord has given me everything, and I am going to trust in the Lord. Uh, I mean, you contrast this widow with the rich young man who thought that he had fulfilled the law, and Jesus said, one thing you lack sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he leaves sad because he had great wealth. Uh, that widow gave more than him because she trusted in, in the Lord. So I think there are a few things practically in our congregations that we can think of. I mean, we don't, nobody wants to be called a scribe. I think we're too quick to assume that we're not like the scribes. I'm not like the scribes. I'm not like the Pharisees. We're, you know, I'm much more, you know, humble than they are. And, it, you know, it gets ridiculous. Uh, but one of the ways of putting this in, in action is recognizing that what you give to the Lord doesn't even belong to you anyway. It was to the Lord, you're just simply giving it back. And also, not caring about how much you give, as far as, don't keep track of it. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can fill in your tax and stuff like that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But, like, don't don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I mean. And... Uh, and don't despise people who give less. The poor members of your congregation who give their tithes out of their, you know, their social security or whatever it is, or their, uh, their very small amount, they're giving just as much or more than you are. And if you are, if the God did bless you with a good job, a good income, so that you're able, when you give your 10%, that you're able to provide for, you know, 
a majority of what the congregation needs. And the congregation is doing really well, and you know it's because of your large income. It's not because of your large income. It's because the Lord blessed the congregation through you, and you should be very humble and grateful that God would use you as his instrument. Uh, we really need to not be to not be like the scribes, is to not think that because that uh, because of us um, that we're like we're blessing God in some way with our material wealth, uh, or that or, or trying to seek some material reward. I think we have to get away from this idea that you know, okay, I'm going to donate to get new um, stained glass windows in the church, but I want my name and you know in all of the stained glass windows. Everyone knows who gave it. Uh, I think we have to be much more like this widow who didn't know Jesus was watching her and gave all that she had, and uh, but the Lord saw it. And uh, it, it's, it's an exercise of faith. Is there within this a connection that we could make to the devouring of widows' houses from the first part of the text in, in this way? And I, I think I've, I've heard this somewhere. I couldn't tell you where. But that, that as the scribes, the Pharisees are hearing what Jesus says, and they're watching what's going on with this widow, that she's putting in everything that she has to live on. And, and well, why? Why is she doing that? And, and not, I'm not saying this to diminish her faith, because that's obviously what Jesus says, that, that she's doing this out of, out of trust for the Lord. But, but almost as a way of, of, I don't know, backhanding the the scribes look look what you what what your teaching leads to where's where's she going to get her support now i mean the answer is of course the lord is going to give continually yeah and 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 she's going to be provided for through the lord i mean the lord takes care of the widow and the fatherless when his people don't and then the people that didn't take care of receive right. the judgment but is there is there something a connection there between those two things you think i think absolutely and the way that the lord uh i think what's been indicated is that she's going to be provided for but it's not going to be by the scribes, and it's going to be to their shame, hmm. because they should be providing for her. We don't know. I mean, we don't, in all honesty, we don't know the situation. She could just simply be a poor widow, and perhaps the scribes and the Pharisees didn't take a penny from her. But she shouldn't be in the situation that she's in, uh, because they're actually are, they actually are supposed to be taking care of her. I mean, she's part of the community of faith. It's not like she's some like unbeliever who's living you know, outside of the community of faith, and she's coming to, to give to the Lord. So, yeah, uh, God will provide to her, and if he provides for her apart from, uh, the, apart from these scribes and Pharisees and the, and the leaders of, of the Church, so to say, uh, then it's to their shame. And I think that's something we Christians have to think about, too. Who is poor in your congregation? You don't want... I don't, I don't think that we should be having poor Lutherans going to the Salvation Army asking for money, or going to some other church that thinks that the second... Uh, that the, the second table of the law is, you know, the entire gospel. We should be providing for our own and taking care of them. And when they're being taken care of by others who don't even have the pure doctrine, uh, that's to our shame and that we should examine ourselves. Pastor Price, with about three minutes here on the morning, help us to wrap things up with this text. Uh, point us to the good news, even in the midst of this warning. Give us the, the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, well, I guess it goes back to the to the greater context uh, that we, we were talking about before, that Jesus is warning uh, against those who teach falsely, and he's giving the signs that you know you will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. What are their fruits? 
gods. Well, is that they care about worldly possessions and earthly stuff, and uh, they do not have love. Uh, but what are the fruits of a, of a true teacher of the word? Well, he's not going to be overly obsessed with worldly praise and with worldly stuff. And he's going to love, and he's going to show, you know, you'll know they will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. But the, the biggest thing and the most obvious thing is the proclamation of the gospel. So if you're supposed to beware of and mark and avoid false teachers, then you should also be aware of and cling to the teaching of true teachers. And those are those who are going to preach Christ, who is the son of David, and yet he is also David's Lord, who is on the way to Jerusalem intentionally because he knows that he's going to be crucified there. And, you know, tomorrow you guys are going to be talking about uh, the destruction of the temple. How can the temple be destroyed? Well, because Christ is coming, and the temple of his body will be destroyed and will be raised again. And there will be no use for the temple anymore, because Christ is our temple, and he is, he is the, uh, the cornerstone of the Christian church that will last forever. Uh, so I, I think what you have to do is by looking at the positive that Jesus is trying to enforce with this negative. Mark and avoid false teachers uh, who are worldly and who have no true love, and go to those who preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, who died for sinners, who gives us a salvation uh, beyond this world, uh, and that produces love in this world. Pastor James Preuss is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Well, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have questions about Mark chapter 12 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.